This is Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The show where social, political, economic, spiritual, and philosophical discourse goes to live. We never give up the high moral ground, take no political divisioners, and fight until the bitterness ends. And now, here's your host, recovering hope addict and paid volunteer in the American experiment, Jeff Stein. You know, it... Rapid change is, is, well, first of all, that's all that's happening, right? <laughs> it's just so fast, right? And this kind of rapid change within a society, within a globe, within a people is like a theme park <laughs> experience. I like to think of it that way. I like my analogies. It's like a theme park experience that we're all having where, you know, each citizen's different perspective gives them a unique experience that could feel like everything from the merry-go-round to the roller coaster, right? We're all on different rides, but we're all experiencing it. Even if you're sitting on the bench watching it all, you're still immersed in the sounds and the sights and the screams of change that are going on. All kinds of change. That's what a renaissance is. This is the greatest social, political, economic, spiritual, technological renaissance in the history of mankind. And we are living it. It's high growth. It's high. It's also a revolution. It's also a form of World War III, like I said in last, uh, but which is World War III is ideological, not escalating to death. And so, you know, <laughs> on Possibility Politics, the show, this is the point. We try to frame change in what we want rather than what we don't want, which is our previous paradigm that we're phasing out of. For instance, let me let me uh, let me go through a couple things that are changing right now and frame them as the intended goal rather than what we don't want. Like instead of race, you know, war, we want racial appreciation. That's the goal, right? We want to get to the point where when say for instance, you know, someone uses a term like all American, you know, so and so is all American. That guy is all American. She's all American. You know, for those who grew up, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that usually means some sort of Aryan looking athletic person, right? It's like, ugh. but the definition, the new definition of what will be all American as we expand our racial appreciation, what we're trying to go, it would mean that somebody, if they were all American, they are so multi ethnic, there's such a DNA soup that their common humanity is the dominant trait that defines them, right? That the fact that they're multi-ethnic defines it, that, that because of this, their inherent, you know, width of their exposure, at least, if not actual DNA soup within you, the exposure to diversity among your immediate families, your friends and your neighborhoods, especially as in your own heritage, if you have that much diversity and it is so embraced, it will make no sense to divide into tribes anymore. And all American will mean somebody who gets our inherent humanity. Oh, there's like an American. Those Americans, they accept everybody. That'll be the new thing. Instead of rude Americans, to be like, oh yeah, Americans, they're used to any race because they're just every race and they're just immersed in every race. That's what we want. That's the goal. And it's happening. And in this theme park of change, you know, some of us are going to be on the on the roller coaster of racial appreciation. Some are going to be watching from the racial street parade in the street with their families while eating churros, right? <laughs> uh, addictive Disney churros. Not a plug, just an addiction. Uh, what other? And there are a lot of other kinds of change. Let me give you some more. For instance, we are going, trying to go from a divided nation to a divided nation that divides into economic status or economic wars into a, a, a country that believes in a pervasive expectation of cooperation, of shared power structures, a society without the old you know, hierarchical ranking, comparing, evaluating, and labeling everybody on their worth to society, but instead the new truth 
of interconnectedness where there are almost literally no leaders, no assistants, no followers, just roles for a given project or a circumstance that are freely chosen and are either appropriate or not for each person. Instead of depending upon their economic status or their background or their race, it's depending upon where an individual is in their pursuit of their purpose, their dreams, their desires, and they'll just be put into a leadership role or a, or a following role or whatever, and nobody will think anything of it. You know, in school, in Common Core, they teach all the time. They teach you to go in teams, and then they rotate roles. You're the leader today. You're the accountant today. You're the person who makes sure everybody's involved, you know, the, 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 the manager, whatever. They change the roles up so everybody gets an idea that the roles are just roles. They don't separate us. Another goal we're trying to achieve in this great change is... Quite frankly, mutually beneficial sexual relations (laughs) instead of harassing each other or discomfort, where in this case, you know, not only would people feel a freedom to express who they are sexually or otherwise, but a society at large that would understand that context and perspective is everything whenever we relate to each other sexually or otherwise and no longer divided by gender roles or by gender expectations, but a recognition that we prefer to be mindful and aware of the lives, liberties, and happiness of everyone and how they pursue it within their gender, within their sexuality, within who they are. And we are rapidly expanding on these goals right now, Uh, but we have to let each other be where we are in this rapid change because now everybody's in the same place. (laughs) There's the front of the curve and the back of the curve and everything in between. And if it's the theme park again, everyone gets to choose to be on the roller coaster or the merry-go-round. And when some of us are screaming through the roller coaster of change, don't try to force the merry-go-round people and the bench sitters to get on the thrill ride. Let them sit on the bench. That's what they're up for. And to the bench sitters, have some understanding about why those that are on the roller coasters are screaming. It's just the knowingness that we're all together. And I use the theme park analogy because it's supposed to be fun. We're all in it together, and we will all achieve it together, and it is really quite that simple. It's a shift of of dynamic, and that's why I always like to say that World War III isn't the escalation of violence and the old paradigm of might making right into into death for all. It's the recognition that war is not the answer, and that the, the World War III is within us. It is within, we have to determine our hatred and our judgments and our, our, our ill feelings towards others from within us. And then we will understand uh, who we are and we will transcend it. It's really that simple, right? <laughs> simple, no problem, let's go. <laughs> Meanwhile, we got a country that is not exactly doing that right now. It is a vastly different experience. So today on Possibility Politics, we'll get into that. Uh, some odd stories too, like the ghost ships of North Korea. I'll tell you what those are. Uh, another non-politician explains the real-life cost of healthcare policy with a powerful truth. In Los Angeles, uh, you know, we have to say we have nothing uh, anywhere resembling weather or seasons. So uh, what we do have is award season. So I'll give you some previews on that. Does Donald Trump lie that much? Does he really lie that much? How often are his pants on fire compared to, say, the pants and dresses of those of your average American fibbers or the media fibbers? I have data. I was surprised by it. Plus, uh, we'll look about how he's reacting to the constant barrage of pressures from, uh, you know, many, many sides, many sides. And uh, Lord help me, I love the Internet, especially around the holidays. So there's a Christmas movie that everyone is watching and a channel that dominates the holidays and a social media dialogue that is beautifully roasting our chestnuts about it. Hang on for that. All of that on today's Possibility Politics. This is Possibility Politics 
where news and life meets optimism and patriotism. I'm Jeff Stein, Juan Velasquez, producing the show. Thank you, Executive Brian, putting it together, making it grow, and then Premier Networks for, uh, you know, uh, putting the roof over it. So, he, the biggest distribution company of radio distribution in the world. Uh, I am here in it. Wee! Soak it up. Soak it up. I don't know. That, that was lame. Uh, <laughs> one of the other things I wanted to talk about, because uh, I wanted to recap a little bit from last show, because I had some great feedback. People said, wow, the fake news stuff was really interesting. But uh, what, could you, one more time. So the fake news, because uh, <laughs> this is another one of these things about what do you want versus what do you don't want. Everybody's pretty clear we don't want fake news news and uh and by the way if you're a if you're like immersed in fake news as we'd like to say everybody else is uh, reality will catch up to anyone who lies to themselves that much because the point of fake news is if you're if you've lost your curiosity and you've replaced it with strength of conviction and you're sticking to your facts even if your facts don't even make any sense anymore then you will reality has a way of catching up with you that's what obama's mom used to say by the mama's mama but the lesson of fake news, the lesson is to teach us that we are more alike than different, that we can choose to agree. It's about an ideology of agreement rather than focusing, focusing on differences. That's the lesson. And, you know, fake news appears to us to be about, you know, right facts versus falsehoods, right versus wrong. It is, but it isn't because facts are always interpretable. And so the lesson of fake news is that uh, when you're debating facts, you're not really debating facts. You're debating the value of your values. You're debating whether your tribe is more credible than their tribe. You're arguing who is right, not what is right. You think you're arguing what is right, but you're actually arguing for your worth, you know, your value, your existence for a lot of people, and uh, which you perceive uh, depends upon your rightness. You don't think you will exist or be as strong if you're not right. And again, all facts are debatable, and that scares us, and fake news scares us, because one, we don't want to be fooled. Uh, being fooled makes us feel weak, makes us feel less than and disempowered, and that makes us want to regain our power through the tools of blame, revenge, conflict, etc., war. And we don't want someone's, more importantly for a lot of folks, say, oh, why do you hate fake news? I hate fake news because I don't want someone's belief in a falsehood affecting my life. Or the lives of my loved ones, because that misinformed person might actually act or react from the place of that falsehood. And so that makes us afraid that our world is in danger because of the wrongheadedness of other people. That's the second part. And the third thing we don't want from fake news, ultimately, is that, and the truth one, that's the meat of it, we don't want to disagree as a people so consistently and so vehemently that it perpetuates this war on facts where we start attacking each other's facts instead of seeking to agree. We want to agree. The antidote to fake the antidote to fake news isn't to make one ideology or another right or wrong or dominant or forced. It is promote and grow an ideology of agreement, of shared destiny, of mutual benefit. We have to train our brains and our citizenry to look for how we are in agreement. And obviously, a lot of folks are. The anthropolo anthropologists uh, like to say, I've read, that uh, when 11% of the uh, populace adopts a vastly more improved state of truth, something that is clearly better, like even, even technologically, once you switch from uh, you know rotary phones to real phones, you're not going back. Once 11% gets it, it grow, it expands henceforth to the rest of the population over the course of time. The time is always the question. That is happening. We are way past 11% of folks that see 
and institutions that see and leaders that see and that it is so much more about how we agree than we disagree. We used to use it as a political football, but now we're actually seeing that that is the point. Because otherwise, everything is a war. It's a fight. It's a horse race. Things have to be framed in conflict. The media loves doing that, right? Because, I'm sorry, facts in themselves will never be some sort of permanent rock that you can stand upon and defend you know, and yourself and think and expect to evolve humanity. Humanity must evolve humanity by being better humanitarians. And that is taught. And fortunately, we're teaching it. Common Core, these are things I talk about that a lot, but the education system, I'm, I've had a lot of educators in my family, teachers, my wife's a teacher. And you just recognize quickly that that's one of the great paradigms that's shifting is that we're focusing way more on agreement. And we will get there. And fake news will be looked back upon in history as the obvious and necessary course correction of the information age, our reaction to fake news. In other words, if you have an information age, you're going to have fake news. And so we have to course correct how to deal with that. Just like if you have a society that has different ethnicities that are beginning to live among each other, racism would be the obvious side effect and would require course correction through education and seeing our commonness more than our divisions because we are all in this together. In fact, you've heard me. I have this expression. I say together is the only way you can do things in this universe. We're all connected. And therefore, the sooner we reach that tipping point of an ideology of agreement, uh, mutual benefit, shared destiny, the sooner we will be the change we're looking for. You know, be the God in us realized the consciousness of our authentic selves, which, by the way, is self-realization, which is why you came here. Creative joy and self-realization. That is actually the meaning of life. That and apparently uh, decent health care, according to Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, the first part of the show I want to get I want to get to the top of the show because this is, I think is so valuable just to know at large. Jimmy Kimmel did it again. You know, his son had to go through a heart surgery, born with a congenital heart defect, means he was born with it. Congenital means born with it. Um, I had to Google it. I'm not, I don't know every word. <laughs> and um, I just going to confirm it, right? Anyway, he was born with it, which is the ultimate case of like, how could you possibly call that responsible, irresponsible? You know, for those who say you should get your own health care, be responsible for yourself. What do you do with a baby that's born with a heart defect? You go on your show, even if you hate politics and hate being in the political storm and you talk about it and you remember he's, if you've listened to the show for a while, uh, we've been chronicling this and, and here's his latest. Hi, I'm Jimmy and this is Billy. I was out last week because he's holding his baby. this guy had a, a heart surgery. But look, he's fine, everybody. <laughs> he may have pooped, but he's fine. <laughs> Daddy cries on TV, but Billy doesn't. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and, and we also want to thank the, the very bright and talented doctors and nurses at Children's Hospital for who treated Billy, and not just Billy, many kids with uh, so much caring and compassion, children from every income level whose health is especially threatened right now because of something you probably never heard of. It's called CHIP. CHIP is the Children's Health Insurance Program. It covers around, um, it covers around 9 million American kids whose parents make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but don't have access to coverage, uh, affordable coverage that are jobs, which means it almost certainly covers children you know. About one in eight children are covered only by CHIP, and it's not controversial, it's not a partisan thing. In fact, the last time funding for CHIP was authorized was in 2015. It passed with a vote of 392 to 37 in the House, yeah. and 92 to eight in the Senate. Overwhelmingly, yeah. Democrats and Republicans Duh. supported it, until now, now CHIP has become a bargaining chip. It's on the back burner while they work out their new tax plans, which means 
parents of children with cancer and diabetes and heart problems are about to get letters saying their coverage could be cut off next month. Merry Christmas, right? So this happened because Congress, about 72 days ago, failed to approve funding for CHIP since the first time since it was created two decades ago. This is literally a life and death program for American kids. It's always had bipartisan support, but this year they let the money for it expire while they work on getting tax cuts for their millionaire and billionaire donors. And imagine getting that letter, literally not knowing how you'll be able to afford to save your child's life. This is not a hypothetical. About two million CHIP kids have serious chronic conditions. I don't know about you, I've had enough of this. I don't know what could be more disgusting than putting a tax cut that mostly goes to rich people ahead of the lives of children. Why hasn't CHIP been funded already? If these were potato chips they were taking away from us, we would be marching on Washington with pitchforks and spears <laughs> right now. Right. So once again, I'm asking you, Billy's asking you to make two phone calls you shouldn't have to make. Jam the House and Senate phones tonight, tomorrow, as long as it takes, tell them to take a break from tax cuts for a minute and fully fund CHIP immediately. Call your representatives in the House and Senate at this number. You can get to both, leave messages for both of them. Don't let them keep pushing it off. They need to fund CHIP now. And I also want to remind everyone that Friday is the last day to enroll in the Affordable Health Care Plan, in spite of President Trump's efforts to sweep it under uh, his rug. Obamacare is not dead. It's very much alive. Millions of people qualify for reduced rate or even totally free plans. But you only have four days left to sign up. So if you do not have health insurance, go to healthcare.gov and get it. You have to do it by December 15th. And by the way, if you don't do it, you will pay a penalty of at least $695 next year if you don't have insurance. So do it. And right, Billy, do it. And Billy's doing great, by the way. He has one more surgery. This is amazing. He had an operation a week ago. They say he's probably uh, on track to win at least a bronze medal in the Olympics in 2036. <laughs> Very so. nice. Jimmy Kimmel, this is where this dialogue is. Look at that. I mean, he went through and gave like the best PSA to explain to people where this is. And it's true, but I, I think it's a dozen states, maybe it's 19 states, where the chip money runs out on January 1st. And so they will be sending letters saying, uh, your treatments are ending. Your treatments are ending. That's it. Period. So that there can be a tax cut for billionaires and millionaires. And you say, was it that stark? Well, yeah, watch their words. I've been sitting and watching some of these press conferences with Paul Ryan and, and, and Republican think tanks, and they're very deliberately trying to starve it all, starve the beast, as they like to say. And that is not the Republican Party I used to know from my family. My Eisenhower family of my, my family of Eisenhower Republicans would have never dreamed of deliberately creating deficits and shortages so that people will give up and say, you're right, we just have to cut this deficit, so let's get rid of Medicare and Social Security and health care instead of, you know, actually asking people to that are rich to pay more. And all these things about this being an overtaxed country, we are not even on the top 10 of taxation on any of the categories, corporate or personal or anything. There are many, many states and many, 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 many countries that charge way more in taxes than we do. Now you say, well, what are we going to do then? They're in control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what the Republicans are going to do. This branch of Republicans, the vast majority of Republicans that I know, uh, would never support this sort of thing. And they have to wait until 2018. And many of them are eagerly uh, waiting. And we have an election today, which I don't know the result of because I'm tracking it, of between uh, Roy Moore and Doug Jones. That is also built on these issues as well as character. And whether or not, most important thing about the the Jones-Moore contest today, it's asking the question, 
Is the tribalism so severe that you will stay with your party even if you admittedly can see that they are doing policies that are destructive to you? Is the other party so abhorrent that you will accept your flawed, damaging, dangerous party members over the other party that might do some things you don't, you don't like? You know, that it might uh, raise taxes on rich people a little bit to pay for health care. Uh, it's it's a great time to be alive. This is being debated. And again, it's happening in Alabama. What a great fortune, which is the south of the south, as they say. It's one of the reddest places ever. Charles Barkley's down there going, it's terrible, people. We don't want to be like idiots. We don't want to be seen like idiots down here. You know, and, and that's that's huge. The awakening's in Alabama. You expect it to happen in Pennsylvania or Michigan or, you know, or Missouri. But it's happening in the in the deepest of deep reds as well. And he's right. You know, again, the, the S chip will, chip will run out. Uh, now, the penalty of 695, that may or may not happen because they're trying to get rid of the Obamacare mandate, which, again, they say will drop the CBO, California uh, Congressional Budget Office, claims will cause about 13 million people to lose insurance. So that's fun. So what's the good news, Jeff, you ask? Well, one of the good news is is, is in this two-party system, you always hope that I'm always – my dream is to have a political talk show where I can uh, say that each side is coming up with very humanitarian ideas that are going to better our country on life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But right now we kind of have – sort of – we had two parties that were pretty in disarray. The, D- the Democratic Party suddenly is looking way more in array, less disarray. The, they had a unity commission where they got together with the Bernie people and the Hillary people and tried to do as many things so that the there would be no more Bernie people and Hillary people that everyone say, yeah, we agree. We're all moving forward. And the results were phenomenal. They exceeded everyone's expectations. You can look it up. I'm not going to get that deep into the policy wonking. But the structure, the deciding who decides what, the who gets to control the DNC, where policy platforms will come from. And whose voices will be heard? All of that stuff was thrown in the light today and codified into an open agreement that says, "Yeah, uh, we got to speak loudly, we got to speak together, and we got to speak for people." I always like to say with my partner Erica Fairstein when we do our, our seminars and things is that governing is the art of demonstrating, legislating, and believing that people matter. Believing, demonstrating, and legislating that people matter, and that at least is starting to happen more of one of the parties. So much so. That there is a massive influx of candidates and participants in numbers that people haven't seen in in the longest time. I mean, it, it, I'm trying to find the numbers. Problems. Look at the, oh, I'm running out of time. Okay, so when we come back, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the uh, the ghost ships in North Korea, the Trump uh, implosion, what's going on there, and also why not some Golden Globes and the Christmas movie of the year that y- maybe you should see. I don't know. That's coming up on Possibility Politics, where we feelize our way to a saner future. This is Possibility Politics, the place where we look at this great experiment called America and hopefully leave her better than we found her. Uh, another couple of points. I did. I found it. found it during the break. Uh, the Renaissance, uh, as it's continuing, I like to think of the Renaissance, which is any kind of awakening. I don't care which party is doing it. I really, really don't. Uh, I am w- celebrating so many Republicans that are very much standing up and proclaiming that they are on the side of principle over party because that's the debate for either one. You know, whether you were a Hillary fan or a Bernie fan or a Trump fan or whatever, it was about, am I going to be loyal to this person no matter what they say or do? Am I going to be loyal to this party no matter what they say or do? Or am I going to gravitate towards the party or the organization or the individual that uh, best represents what I feel is going to make us better, believe, demonstrate, and legislate that people matter? So as of December 7th, a couple little fun numbers here. 
There were 369 women running or planning to run for Congress in 2018. 369. That is, of course, a record running for Congress. Give me an example of of some of the other things. In 2010, which is the last really wave election, right, where everyone knew that, oh, my gosh, there's this groundswell of activity. 150 women ran as Democrats back in 2010, seeing that change needed to happen. And about 140 women ran as Republicans. So kind of even pretty close. And that was 2010. And there was, a like I say, and now 360, in this time, 369 uh, women are running for Democrats and about 60 women are running as Republicans. Uh, actually, yeah, 60 are running as Republicans, over 300 are running as Democrats. And another thing they just discovered, you know, the amount of participation in, in one party or another, who people register to vote as, obviously Democrats, Republicans, 44% of the electorate is Democrat. There, That's pretty consistent over the years. That's kind of held strong. It's usually about that. Both parties usually sit around in the 40s. of, and But right now, people registering Republican went from 42% to 37%. That is the lowest in decades. So I say again to my family's Eisenhower Republican Party, y'all got to get on the ball here. <laughs> we got to start behaving like Republicans again. Or it's just going to be Democrats getting in trouble, then they'll get corrupt, and then that'll suck too. So, you know, because absolute power, right? There's got to be opposing ideas that are not even opposing, just a, a willingness to agree, an ideology of agreement that gets us somewhere. That is the uh, that is the point, and that is my hope. Um, <laughs> but until then, uh, let's have a little divisive talk about uh, Donald Trump because, man, this guy, I, I he is such a gift. I know you just say what his narcissism is 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 helping us recognize ours. It's you know he doesn't want to hear anything that doesn't make him happy. Uh, there were some reports about him watching way too much television and drinking twelve diet cokes and this and that. And of course he tweeted said another false story this time in the failing New York Times that I watch four to eight hours of television a day. Wrong. Never repeat someone's accusations. <laughs> And reaffirm it. It's again, don't focus on what you don't want. Focus on what you do want. You should say, I don't watch any television instead of, I don't watch what they said of four to eight hours. Anyway, it says, wrong. Also, I seldom, if ever, watch CNN or MSNBC, both of which I consider fake news. And I never watched Don Lemon, who I once called the dumbest man on television, bad reporting. So the internet had a great time with that. <laughs> uh, but also, oh my gosh. So, cause that's what I love about the, the, this new reality is that we get to have instant response from all kinds of very funny people. Right. <laughs> so he says that tweet out. Somebody, uh, Drew McCoy says the story came out of the weekend, but CNN did a segment on it in the last hour of the morning show, which is interesting. So if CNN did a segment, then why did he suddenly talk about it? If he says that he doesn't listen to them, that's right. He already, always, already gives himself out. Donnie, if it's just fake news, why bother responding? It reminds me of your campaign speeches when you'd point at the media and say, I have to be very accurate. Accurate. The fake news is here. If their reporting is always fake, why bother with accuracy? Oh, right. You don't. My bad. <laughs> and so I love this one too. Mrs. Betty Bauer says, so Donald, you are constantly angry about shows you never watch. <laughs> Uh, how do you know he's so dumb? How do you know Don Lenneman is so dumb if you never watch? It's just so simple. Everyone else gets it, right? 
<laughs> uh, this is a great comparison too. Somebody puts up that they always do the here's here's a quote from Sarah Huckabee versus a quote from President Obama. The Sarah Huckabee says, "I don't think you can expect someone to be attacked day after day, minute after minute, and sit back." That's what Sarah has. Donald uh, President Obama said at the in the 2012 UN General Assembly. As president of our country and commander-in-chief of our military, I accept that people are going to call me awful things every day, and I will always defend their right to do so. That's the contrast. That's the difference we're living in. And I give you the great Stephen Colbert. Uh, we got another glimpse inside the White House this weekend. On Saturday, the New York Times gave a detailed look at Trump's day-to-day life that paints a portrait of an angry, paranoid man who feels constantly under attack. And that for Donald Trump, every day is an hour-by-hour battle for self-preservation. Trump feels under attack but tries to stay positive about Mueller's investigation into his campaign's possible collusion with Russia, telling several people, it's life. (laughs) Yes, it's life. But you could plead that down to 30 years if you rat out Don Jr. (laughs) Nice. And it turns out the reporting that Donald Trump is drowning his sorrows in a dozen Diet Cokes each day. Oh, man. Which explains Diet Coke's new slogan, Diet Coke, 12 is too many. (laughs) Trump views his whole presidency as a war against his enemies. Before he took office, he told top aides to think of each presidential day as an episode in a television show in which he vanquishes rivals. Those TV shows, How to Get Away with Treason, followed by (laughs) Grab's Anatomy. Of course, there are some moments when the president isn't watching Fox News. Sometimes he has Fox News hosts come to him, like former judge and woman who just purchased an orphanage at auction, Janine Pirro. Judge Janine recently met with Trump at the White House, where she spent more than an hour whipping up the president against Robert Mueller. It's his dream come true. A live performance of Fox News. In the commercial break, they even sold him a self-lubricating catheter. (laughs) But you're going to want it. You're going to thank me. You're going to thank me for the lubrication. But Judge Janine evidently overstayed her welcome because Trump eventually got tired of her screed and walked out of the room. But Judge Pirro has a need, a need for screed. So she kept up her attack on Mueller and the FBI on what can only be described as her television show. There is a cleansing needed in our FBI and Department of Justice. It needs to be cleansed of individuals who should not just be fired, but who need to be taken out in handcuffs. The stench coming out of the Justice Department and the FBI is like that of a third world country. Well, it's time to take them out in cuffs. And that's my open. Tell me what you think on my Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram. Hashtag Judge Janine. Mueller and his corrupt junta are maggots gorging on the corpse of Lady Liberty, and freedom-loving patriots must drink their blood from the chalice of justice. And that's my opening. Join the conversation on Insta with hashtag push Mueller into traffic. Oh, God, I love Stephen Colbert so much. It's a little scary. I'm laughing because it is a little scary. They're at a full attack right now against the Justice Department. Uh, Newt Gingrich says uh, Mueller is corrupt. The senior FBI is corrupt. The system is corrupt. He said that on December 11th, just a couple days ago here. And uh, mind you, on May of this year, just a few months ago, he also said Robert Mueller is a superb choice to be ex- to be special counsel. His reputation is impeccable for honesty and integrity. Media should now calm down. 
So they're purely partisan. Whoever the fight is for the moment, that's who they're going to go with. And if you want to consume that, go listen to Janine Pirro and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. If you don't and you still like Fox News, you better listen to Shep Smith a little bit and Chris Wallace. And you get a little balance over there. Uh, what little there is of it. <laughs> that's okay, though. Different channels and different points of view. Uh, that's why you got to be a better uh, you know, sifter yourself. So, uh, well, coming up, I want to tell the, the example of they did a study on Trump's lying, which is super fascinating, as well as the lightning round. But real quick, did you guys hear about this, these ghost ships from North Korea that are showing up in Japan? At least 40 corpses, just bodies in ships from around 15 different boats have washed up along Japan's west coast since November. So just recently. And they're little skiffs, little little junks, if you will. That's the wrong term, that's Chinese. But, uh, and it's because they're starving. It's because they're suffering. And they're just floating their bodies out to sea, I guess. It's really wild. Look it up. It's a trippy story. So when we come back, Trump's lying. And then the Golden Globe stuff and the best Christmas thing ever, I think. We'll see on Possibility Politics. Final segment of Possibility Politics, the place where social, political, popular, and unpopular culture seen through the lens of possibility, purpose, and a little sarcasm. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks, Juan Velasquez, producing the show. And uh, liars, liars and the liars, lying liars that tell them. Remember that book? <laughs> uh, Al Franken, believe it or not. So that didn't work out. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, it did. He had a great, uh, he got a great run, and his 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 life is hardly over. Uh, of, of all the people that could redeem and find a way back into uh, politics, he seems like a pretty high on the list. Uh, for those who are supporting him, for those who are good riddance, uh, you might also want to look at uh, other folks and see if they need to be good riddance as well, which is a big topic right now, is all the sexual harassment. It's back in. It's gaining momentum. The uh, timing is everything. And you may have gotten away from the Access Hollywood video back in the day because the Russians bombarded uh, Russians with apparently your help from Roger Stone and uh, Jared Kushner and other people that were in the meeting. Um, uh, yeah, put out uh, massive Hillary damning emails right when the Access Hollywood video hit. So that got knocked out of the news cycle. Anyway, liars. They always do studies on lying, you know, and one of the, they, and then they aggregate and peer review it. One of the more recent ones they did, which was with college students, they always use college students when they do studies, but also people in the community. And they had people go through their day and write down how many times they lied, what kind of lies they did from white lies and whether lies were designed to help people feel better to protect them or whether the lie was to hide, you know, uh, your uh, indiscretions or mistakes or to make you look better and, uh, and then counted them up. And they say that the college students and the community member, the college students told an average of two lies a day. Uh, the community members told one lie a day Another study showed that uh, the lies of 1,000 U.S. adults told in the previous 24 hours found that people told an average of 1.6 lies per day and that 60% of the participants said they told no, no lies at all, while the top 5% of liars told nearly half of all the falsehoods in the study. The most prolific liar among the student group told an average of 6.6 lies in a day. <laughs> it was an average. The biggest liar in the community sample, the college sample, the community sample, told 4.3 lies in an average day. Those are the numbers for 6.6, 4.3 for the biggest liars. In Donald Trump's first 298 days in office, he made 1,628 false or misleading claims or flip-flops by their tally. That's about six per day, far higher than the average rate in the studies. And of course, 
uh, reporters have access to only a subset of you know Trump's false statements that the ones he makes publicly. So unless he never stretches the truth in private, his actual rate of lying is obviously so the public statements are six lies per day and that the rate has been accelerating starting in early October. Their tracking showed that the Trump told nine lies a day, <laughs> outpacing any of the biggest liars in their study. And he told 6.6 times as many self-serving lies as lies intended for kindness. <laughs> no surprising there, I suppose. I don't know. You know, he's, a, he's again, enjoy him. His days are numbered. He's freaking out. It is going to be a strange year next year. And uh, because this is going to be the most exciting 2018 because it's just I always tell my friends it's like that, like a, a, a symphonic sound that's increasing exponentially is, you know, it's going to get faster and faster and things are going to get crazier and crazier as we uh, move through this year. You can count on it. So just for fun, though, let's get to come to the other things. Uh, Golden Globes, their nominations were announced because, again, in Los Angeles, we don't have significant changes in weather here. Uh, so we have a joke. We have four seasons in Los Angeles, wildfires, mudslides, car chases, and awards season. And so the latter is here. Well, both of them, wildfires and award seasons are here. And there were a lot of very socially and politically, of course, this award season. That's why I bring it up. So the the the, show, the movies are particularly uh, awards focused, and we should talk about the snubs and the surprises a little bit, right? The snubs, uh, the Veep. If you watch the Veep, and that did not get any nominations. Girls Trip star Tiffany Haddish, uh, see with everything Haddish, Haddish. I apologize. She uh, was uh, just everybody loved her. The movie went crazy and got no. Uh, Lady Bird, uh, the director Greta Gerwig. If you don't know Lady Bird, it's a, it is the highest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes ever. Right. It's this weird little independent film. Check it out. I haven't watched it yet. I've seen the trailer. Like, it's really interesting. Um, and it's done by this, like, just a startup uh, lady out of kind of nowhere, so to speak. Nobody's out of nowhere. In Hollywood, we like to call it the 10-year overnight success. Somebody's like, oh, my God, they're instantly smart. No, they've been trying for a long time. Uh, there was no, no acknowledgement of Wonder Woman. And for those in politics and women's rights and things, that was a, a big deal. Not one Game of Thrones actor, uh, even though Game of Thrones got Best Drama nomination, they didn't get any be- any actor nominations. And The Big Sick, if you haven't seen that, is very is a great movie. It is out of it didn't get any major categories. No comedy, no screenplay, no comedy actor. And Get Out, if you know Get Out, the thriller by uh, Peel, right? No uh, no nominations for best screenplay or director there. Those were kind of snubs. But the surprises were Catherine Langford, the actress. She got nominated for Thirteen Reasons. That's that controversial, you know, perspective providing serial about a teen suicide. The Shape of Water got seven nominations. Look at the trailer. Trippy movie. Guillermo del Toro. Uh, Fascinating looking movie. Big Little Lies got six nominations. And um, let's see. The uh, the other one that was a big deal was Political View, if you care, Christopher Plummer. Why does that matter? He got an uh, award for the uh, Cold War era film that's coming out. And it's it's a big deal because he was replaced... He replaced Kevin Spacey, and they put it together really fast, right? And and now, all the money in the world, by the way, is the name of it. And it's getting a lot of attention, so we'll see how that goes. That's the story of the kidnapping of um, 16-year-old John Paul Getty III and the desperate attempt by his devoted mother, now I'll read it, Michelle Williams, to convince his billionaire grandfather, John Paul Getty, to pay the ransom. It's kind of this exciting action thing. Got Mark Wahlberg as the ex-spy who's hired to deal with the kidnapper. And that got three gold gold nominations also for Michelle Williams and then and then Ridley Scott, the director-producer, as well as Christopher Plummer. Now, 
<laughs> okay, so there's a movie out <laughs> that uh, you have to know about. It's called A Christmas Prince. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it yet, um, it's, it's insanely adorable. I watched it. I went through it, and uh, I got a kick out of it. <laughs> but the internet's going crazy about it. It says that even when Netflix wants, I love this article in the HuffPost, even Netflix wants to know who is seriously binge-watching A Christmas Prince. They sent out a text, a, a, a Twitter, a tweet, Netflix did, said, to the 53 people who've watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days, who hurt you? Because they've got data, obviously. And a Twitter responder said, uh, why are you calling people out like that, Netflix? Netflix says, I just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> She says back, you're not my mom. Netflix says, okay, sweetie. I love the internet. Netflix, how many times in a row have I watched Friends since you put it up? Netflix says, not enough. <laughs> suddenly, I another texter, another Twitter, I suddenly I am very concerned about what Netflix thinks of our Teen Titans Go viewing habits. habits. And then Netflix says, no, you're fine. And I love this. Emer the Screamer tweeted, I'm on my second viewing of A Christmas Prince. It's such an instant terrible classic. How did it get made and when is the sequel? Uh, another one, words can't describe how bad A Christmas Prince is. Words also can't describe how good it is. <laughs> a Christmas Prince on Netflix is like a Craps Princess Diaries 2 version of How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Therefore, I loved it and I'm gonna need a sequel. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's so cute, I'm telling you. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, uh, like I say, Netflix, and um, I'll give you a little taste of the trailer if I can get it up fast enough. Here we go. Forget Fashion Week. What do you know about the royal family of Aldovia? Aldovia. The king died last year, and the prince who's supposed to take <laughs> oh, he's over so cute. is a total slave and scandalous socialite. <laughs> Why me? You're talented, hungry, smart, and none of my regular writers can go this week. Ah, yes, the hungry woman, this young lady. This assignment could jumpstart your career. Oh. She goes to Aldovia, and it's so beautiful! I'm actually inside the palace. It's like one of these 1800s Jewish uh, Fonstein type castles named, exclusive. you know, like Disney. Get lots of video, you know. audio, whatever you can grab. <laughs> and of course, she breaks things. She's clumsy and adorable. The plot is thinner than thin. Oh, he shaved his beard off. He's Hi. absolutely adorable. Ready? Hang on! You know, and he throws snowballs, and he's just cute, and he's got a, a dilemma because it turns out there's a problem with him inheriting the crown, and... And she has to help, and she does. And oh my God, it's just, it's, it's, like I said, it's so terrible and it's so good. And it makes us wonder are, is this what we like at Christmas? You know what? We do. Uh, <laughs> Hallmark Channel, right? And they have been dominating the holiday season. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, they are in the first two weekends of the holiday season. Hallmark has the most viewers of any cable channel. Because <laughs> and the reason is is they have this same Christmas formula that that again uh, the, the funny writers at HuffPost did a, a parody of. They said, "Here's the uh, uh, and by the way, they've made 33 Christmas movies this year, and bringing their total, the Hallmark total." Since 2008, since they started doing Christmas movies every year, of 128. They made 128 Christmas movies. And they say, why do they work? Here's their formula, jokingly. Uh, step one, hire B-list actors. Yeah, you'll see that for yourself. <laughs> Two, make it about the power of Christmas. And they always do. It's always like, they're changed because Christmas. Number three, 
Make it very white with a sprinkling of diversity. <laughs> God, they called him out on that one. And that, of course, now they'll be start rushing to make a very, you know, diverse Christmas next. Number four, find a town that definitely does not exist. <laughs> I was noticing some of these things. They're made in like Cookie Jar City, Garland, Alaska, Evergreen. There's several with Evergreen, which don't even have a state name. It's just Evergreen Nowhere where they do it. And, uh, and the most important part of it is that make sure that the movie is not over if the two leads are not together. You can count on them being together in the end. It'll just be plain adorable. I guarantee it. So anyway... <laughs> I, I try to want to lighten it up a little bit because let's face it, it's the holiday, it's the season, and this is usually when our stress goes through the roof. And I'd rather, uh, you know, have us a little bit together. In fact, I, I'll, I'll quote the um, the favorite uh, Bible quote from uh, Lyndon Johnson. He used to say, "It's from Isaiah: Come, let us reason together." And that is what we can hope for as we move into this. Uh, the end of uh, as I'll probably do some of those best of lists uh, at some point. Uh, you know, because you always have to do the end of the year. And so uh, hang on for that. And uh, in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for checking us out on Facebook and Twitter. Also, remember, we're looking more for an ideology of agreement, not fake news. And uh, I guess uh, on the next show, I will tell you what happened. We'll talk about what happened in Alabama, baby. That's going to be something to see. Thank you for listening to Possibility Politics. This has been Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The social, political, pop-cultural discussion show that looks at life through the rose-colored eyes of the almost criminally optimistic Jeff Stein. 